I don't know if you guys saw this recent study uh, from psychologists at the University of North Carolina, but they were researching what American Christians think God looks like, okay? So like the face of God. What they did is they found 511 self-identifying Christians in this country, and they gave them two options, two faces, and they said, which one looks more like God? And then after you make your pick, they give you another two options and so on and so forth until the sort of facial features of God get more and more distinct. And then at the end of the study, they take all of these images and sort of average them. They have this aggregate picture of God's face, all right? Now, it sounds like a strange project, but apparently for those studying the psychology of religion, this is a good way to measure how believers perceive God, what we think God is like. So you want to know what God looks like? Okay, here's, here's what God looks like, according to uh, American Christians. Now, one, an author of one article I read that summarized this study wrote, to me, the figure looks like a prototypical lifeguard named Steve. He's, he's kind, warm, he's always looking out for the little guy, and he never forgets to reapply his sunscreen. See, the researchers made sure to point out that this picture, it's, it's not meant to be the definitive image of how Americans view God necessarily. The lead author, lead author of the study, a guy named Joshua Conrad Jackson, said, it's really about appreciating the psychological factors behind why we might see God differently than somebody else. In other words, the results hint that our views of God reflect our biases and our expectations. That is, we want a God that reflects who we are and what we look like and what we hope for in the world. It's kind of funny. But here's the serious point, I think. The picture's interesting, not because of what it reveals about God. I mean, it doesn't reveal anything about God, right? It's just a fuzzy black and white photo of a guy that looks like Steve, Steve the lifeguard. Um, It's interesting because of what it reveals about us. It's interesting because of the hopes and the expectations that we import to God. In other words, these professors are trying to answer the question, who do people say God is, right? And the American Christian answer is... Uh, he's young, he's likable, he's friendly, he's warm, he's positive, encouraging, diligent, and he's a go-getter, right? Steve the sunscreen guy. It turns out uh, that these researchers didn't make this question up, though, after all. It's a question that's been around for a long, long time. In the passage that we're looking at this morning from Mark 8, Jesus asks the exact same question that the University of North Carolina researchers asked in their study. He says to his disciples in verse 27 of chapter 8, who do people out there say that I am? In other words, what's the average aggregate opinion of me in the ancient Near East uh, in the year, you know, let's say 30 A.D.? Now, at that time, they didn't have an army of researchers to digitally capture the results like we do. But there were just as many expectations. There were just as many hopes and assumptions about Jesus then as there are today. The disciples told Jesus the results of the opinion poll of their day. Here's who people say that you are. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Still others say that you're one of the prophets. See, people in that day, as they were processing the phenomenon I mean, he'd been doing ministry now for probably a year or two years. His name was out there, and people are trying to figure out, like, what do we do with this guy, right? Like, he's doing crazy stuff. He's saying crazy stuff. Where do we, what category do we put him in? 
Um, and the answer is basically they assumed he was a very powerful and very insightful once-in-a-generation leader, right? He, he's still someone that we can understand. He's like us. We've seen others like him before, even if they're rare. He's like one of the greats. He's like Elijah, or he's like John the Baptist. Their answer reveals that they thought he was great by human standards, but probably nothing more than human. Someone they admired, someone they even revered, but they could still understand him. They could still approach him. He was a guide. He was a helper, a buddy. He was likable. He was diligent, right? Turns out that in the ancient world, opinions about God weren't so different than in the modern world. Then Jesus gets to the real thing, though. Then Jesus asked the real question, the one that actually matters. See, back then and today, it's interesting and it's sort of entertaining to see what opinion polls show, but that's not that important. Here's what's important. The next words out of Jesus' mouth are actually the most important question you will ever be asked. It doesn't matter what the people say that I am. Here's the question, verse 29. Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? Right? Forget the polls Forget the averages. Forget the aggregate picture of God's face. That's our question this morning. Actually, that's been our question through the whole series of Mark. This is the central question of Mark. In a lot of ways, this passage we had this morning is the central passage in the entire book. This is a question only you can answer. Not parents and not spouses and not opinion polls. This is a question for you alone from God alone directly to you. Who do you say that God is? And the exchange that happens between Jesus and Peter in the coming verses reveals the true answer to that question. This is not Jesus according to ancient Near East hopes and expectations. This is not Jesus uh, according to modern American hopes and expectations and biases. This is Jesus according to Jesus from the mouth of Jesus. And the answer, to say the least, is surprising. And if we grasp it and see it and love it and take great delight in it, it's actually transformative. This answer is life-changing. So we're all Peter this morning, okay? We've been asked a direct question, who do you say that I am? We're trying to answer it the best we can, and then we're trying to grapple with what Jesus tells us about himself, all right? Everybody Peter, you in the mindset? All right, let's jump in. Here we go. The first thing we see in verse 29 is that Jesus is the king. In reply to Jesus' central question, who do you say that I am? Peter, who I love, he's brash, he's bold, he's ready, fire, aim, uh, he's faithful. Uh, He jumps right in without hesitation, and he says, you are the Christ, or you are the Messiah, as we heard read a minute ago. Now, it might not seem like it, but this is a revolutionary answer that Peter gives. A really good friend of mine became a Christian in high school, and a few months into learning about Christianity, he'd never really been exposed to it as a kid, and so he's kind of learning about Christianity. He's coming to church with us, hearing sermons and talks, and uh, a few months into learning about Christianity, it hit him that when people said the word Jesus and people said the word Christ— They were actually talking about the same person, okay? Now, can you imagine trying to sort out Christianity if you thought Jesus and Christ were different people? Okay, this is my buddy for like a few months. He's like totally confused. This cracks me up to this day. He eventually got it sorted out. But up to this point in human history, Jesus and Christ had not been combined yet, 
Okay, this is the first time any human being has said Jesus Christ is the same person. Okay, this is the first time that connection has been made. And just so we're clear, Christ is not Jesus' last name. He's not Jesus, Mr. Christ, okay? This is a title. Just like in the same way that when you go to medical school, you get the title doctor. And whether you're in the hospital or not, you carry that respect with you, right? You carry that position. People refer to you as doctor so-and-so because it's a title that shows your station in life. Um, This Christ, the word Christ, is a title that means king, It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the anointed one, the one destined to be king. So Peter is saying here, he's confessing Jesus is the king, not a king, not next in line of a long succession of kings and rulers in this world, but the king. See, this is the word Messiah, the word Christ, it refers to the long-awaited king the Jewish people had been hoping for and trusting in for centuries. This is a title that refers to God himself. He's calling this human being the king. Now, this is quite an answer. First time in human history that anyone has got this deep into the identity of God. He is in uncharted theological waters. You are the king of all things applied to a human being. This is a revolutionary confession. And it's worth pausing for just a minute before we move on to ask, have you experienced the revolution of confessing that Jesus is the Christ? That Jesus is the king of your life. Not a king, not one voice among many voices that we can choose to follow as we want to when it's convenient or comfortable to us, but the Christ, the King, the cosmic king over all things. See, not, uh, he doesn't share the throne with money. He doesn't share the throne with our family. He doesn't share the throne with our hobbies or our work. He gets the final say in our life all the time. We adjust to his ways. He doesn't adjust to ours. I mean, this was revolutionary for Peter. And if we confess the same thing, it's actually revolutionary for our own lives. It reorients what our entire life is about. You are the Christ. I mean, consider it. It's almost un-American, right? Like, didn't we fight a war to get out from under kings? And it certainly cuts against the grain of this valley where we find ourselves between Independence Pass and Defiance, Colorado, doesn't it? Um, The idea of bending the knee and submitting to a king It goes against everything that we're wired for. And yet, this is the first part of the identity of Jesus that we see. You are the Christ and all the implications of that confession. It's a monumental thing. But if you think this part of Jesus' identity is unsettling, wait till you hear the next part. Peter could not have been more shocked and confused about what comes next. Jesus is not only the king It turns out he's the crucified king. Picking up in verse 30, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. In other words, yes, Peter, you're right. Okay, I am the Christ. But wait a second, because you don't have the whole picture yet. So before you start running around telling people what you think you mean by that, I have some explaining to do. Here's the explanation. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man the most common way he refers to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes 
and be killed and after three days to rise again. And he said these things very plainly to them. Okay, there's no confusing this explanation of Christ, of Jesus the King. See, Peter had just made a connection that no other person had ever made. Jesus, this human being who eats with us, drinks with us, walks with us, talks with us, whose mom changed his diapers, who had pimples in high school, like the most normal person you've ever met, is also the cosmic king, okay? First time those two things have been put together. And Jesus doesn't even let him think about that and consider that for one minute before he totally blows up Peter's idea of what that means. See, that would have been enough for the day, but Jesus immediately says, here are more things you have to know. As king, as the Christ, I must do these four things. I must suffer, I must be rejected, I must be killed, and after three days, I must rise again. This was just about the opposite of what Peter thought he was saying Jesus, saying about Jesus. The king was supposed to be powerful. The king was supposed to be victorious. The king was supposed to win for crying out loud, right? What's this crazy talk about suffering and dying? Um, These two announcements, it's something like if you're in school and your teacher just introduces the concept of trigonometry, and as soon as you can say the word cosine, you jump to calculus, okay? It's like, hold on a second. Can't we just sit in this announcement for a minute? Christ, Jesus is the Christ That's mind-blowing. Oh, by the way, now he's the crucified Christ. Like, why not let these guys sit on it for a few days or decades, right? Why can't we, like, figure this part out for a while before he adds this? Why does he have to put them together immediately? Because of one key word at the beginning of Jesus' explanation. Did you catch the word? It's the word must. The Son of Man, Jesus' favorite way to speak of himself, must suffer must be rejected, must be killed, and after three days, rise again. It's a word that means this is absolutely necessary. These two things have to be tied together. They can never be taken apart. Jesus must suffer to end human suffering. Jesus must be rejected so his followers can be accepted into his royal family. Jesus must die on the cross so he can live forever. And Jesus must rise again for all of these gifts to be offered to his people. See, Jesus the King must never be separated from Jesus the Crucified One. It's absolutely necessary that both parts of his identity be tied together. That's why he doesn't let Peter or us catch our breath here. He's the Crucified King, and it couldn't have been any other way. All right, so as we're reading the Bible, a helpful thing to do is to pretend you're a three-year-old. You know what three-year-olds do? What's the one question three-year-olds always ask and you can never get out of it? Why? Why? But, you know, and then you give the answer, but why that? Why is the sky blue? Well, because of the atmosphere. Well, why? I don't know. Like, just stop asking why. So be a three-year-old when you read the Bible, okay? Be a three-year-old. As we're, as we're looking through this, always ask, but, but why? Why must it be this way? Why must the cosmic king also be the crucified Savior? Why is it absolutely necessary these two things go together? Here's why. Jesus must be the cosmic, all-powerful king who sits in heaven, untouched, unpolluted by the sins and the stains of this world to save us, okay? Our salvation has got to come from the outside of ourselves, from the outside of everything, because we and everything else in this world has been touched by sin, broken by sin, stained by sin. We need a rescuer, a perfect, powerful rescuer from the outside 
to come and save us. We need a cosmic king. He must be the king. But at the same time, he must be a suffering, crucified, dying, losing king. Why? To save us. Because we suffer, and we lose, and we die. See, he must become like us, fully human, and enter into our world and be fully exposed to the damage that sin has done. He must be one of us to identify with us, to be united to us, to save us. So he must be the king to save us, and he must be the crucified one to save us. The crucified king. Here's the center of Christianity. I mean, no opinion poll, no amalgamation of God's faces, no matter how many people, people you poll, would have come up with this plan, right? I mean, this is totally unique in the history of the world. It's beautiful, and only God could have dreamed it up. None of this, however, computes with Peter. What he thought he meant by calling Jesus the Christ is something totally different from what Jesus is telling him it means that he is the Christ. Peter's vision maybe like our vision, has a whole lot more winning in it, doesn't it? A whole lot more victory, a whole lot less losing, and a whole lot less dying. He envisioned a king that beat the bad guys, not a king that was beaten to death by the bad guys, didn't he? And so this next scene is just so classic. I love, I love Peter. I think this is hilarious, and I think it's because I see myself in Peter. Um, Yeah, so Peter gently pulls Jesus aside to share his insights and his theological and spiritual thoughts with Jesus, okay? And he does this, you know, quietly. He pulls him aside. He doesn't want to embarrass Jesus. He wants just to set the record straight apart from the other guys so that it doesn't get awkward. He says, hey, I'm with you, Jesus. You know that. You're my king. I got your back. But let's keep it positive, huh? Like, let's keep the energy going. We got a good momentum here. I just confessed you were the king. Like, consider the morale of the guys. We don't need all this death talk. What we need is some happy thoughts. We need some good vibes, some groovy stuff. We have a good thing going. Let's not make it all dark. Peter thinks he's doing Jesus a solid. He's keeping things upbeat and on track and according to expectation. And then Jesus does what? He calls Peter Satan, right? I mean, this is just like, oh man, verse 33, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the, excuse me, on the things of man. I mean, talk about a bucket of cold water. In about two minutes, Peter went from being the first person who had ever called Jesus the Christ to being called Satan by Jesus himself, like rough day, right? Why does Jesus respond this way? We've already seen why. Because it must be this way, right? These two identities, these two things have to go together. If there's going to be any real, substantial, eternal hope for us, Jesus must be the crucified king. He, if he isn't king, he doesn't have the power to save us. If he isn't crucified, he doesn't bear the guilt and the shame of the sin to save us. And Peter, without really understanding what he's saying, is trying to separate what we can never separate. And the reason Jesus goes nuclear and calls him Satan right out of the gates is because this is exactly what Satan does. This is exactly how Satan approaches Jesus. Remember when he's tempting him in the, in the desert? This is the exact same option Satan tries to give Jesus. Victory without suffering. Salvation without death. 
winning according to the kingdom of this world and not this like upside down backwards winning that Jesus has planned by losing and by dying. Peter is channeling the very same options that Satan gives him for success in the world without suffering and death. So he calls him Satan. See, what happened was Peter's problem was really the same problem I think you and I have when we encounter Jesus, when we consider Jesus. He understood a lot of Jesus, but not all of him. He, he loved half of what he heard about Jesus. He loved the king part, okay? That part was easy for Peter. When he saw that in Jesus' character, he's like, yes, I'm for winning, I'm for victory, I'm for spiritual transformation, let's go, I'm with you. He didn't see the glory and the hope involved in the suffering and the crucifixion. That part made no sense to him. So what he had done, he'd imported his own biases, his own hopes and expectations of Jesus. He had a blurry picture of God's face that he thought Jesus would look like. And when Jesus didn't match up to him, he tried to change God instead of letting his perception of God, his understanding of God, be changed. Does this question, I know the answer, but I want you to think about it. Does this ever happen in your life? The answer is yes. We all do this. We all come with a preconceived notion of what God should be like, how he should act in the world, what he should do, what his top characteristics should be. What are yours? What are your biases? What are your preferences? What are the things, what are the verses, the doctrines, the things about God that you're immediately attracted to? You love this about God. He's a forgiving God. He's a loving God, whatever it is. And then what are the things that are like, oh boy, that, ooh, I don't know about all that. What are the verses, the doctrines that make you uncomfortable or that um, you uh, don't really know where to put in your conception of God? See, the truth is, Our best spiritual thoughts and intuitions, like Peter's, need to be constantly challenged, corrected, and refined by the true Jesus as he reveals himself to us in his word, the Bible. Like that blurry photo of our lifeguard buddy Steve, our expectations about Jesus, they reveal far more about us than they reveal about him. But in his love, in his grace, in his generosity, he has given us this full, reliable, complete guide to know him and love him and delight in him and enter a relationship with the crucified king. And in many ways, the entire Christian life can sort of be summed up as the process of Jesus meeting us through his word over and over and over again and shaping and refining and correcting us, our, our mind, our heart, our lives deepening a relationship with the real him to expand our knowledge and expand our hearts to love and delight in him more. And that's where Jesus takes us as we wrap up here. And um, he takes us in this passage uh, that he's revealed himself as the crucified king. And now he wants to show what a life following that kind of king would look like. Okay, The crucified king totally upside down, nothing we could have expected, totally blows our categories. And now he's saying, if you follow and worship an upside-down king, you live in an upside-down kingdom. What's it look like to live and follow God in this world? Verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, um, 
you can't say Jesus doesn't warn you, okay? He doesn't uh, make you follow him. He says, if you're going to follow me, all right, if anyone would come after me, your, your choice. You can put your, your hope and faith in him for a life of meaning and joy, or you can put it in something else for a life of meaning and joy. You get to decide. But if you're coming after me, if you're following me, he says, here's what you're signing up for, okay? So you can't say that this is a bait and switch. You can't say he's trying to sell you something. He tells you up front, here's the plan. Here's what it looks like to live in my kingdom. Following a crucified king means living a cruciform life. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He says, my kingdom is characterized by those who deny themselves, who put God's interests and others' interests before their own. So if second place is the first loser, Christianity is like the second loser, right? And, and Jesus says, exactly. Yeah, you're always in third place. God, others, and then you. You live a life to serve. You live a life to pour out your energy on behalf of others. And also, he says, you take up your cross as I took up mine and follow me. You enter difficulty and suffering for the sake of others. You use your power and position to serve others at the cost of what you consider life-giving, at the cost of comfort, the cost of money, time, space, energy, all that stuff. This passage, and others like it in the Bible, it almost seems like Jesus is trying to talk us out of following him, doesn't it? I mean, he's, he's laying it down. He's saying, here's what you're signing up for. This is not the normal way we would go about gathering a movement or inspiring followers. Can you imagine reading a leadership or a management book that said, follow me on the course of downward mobility, not upward mobility, be small and insignificant in my upside-down kingdom. Follow me into obscurity and almost certain death of your life's dreams. I mean, like, what kind of advice would that be for any leader? But that's exactly what Jesus, the crucified king, is saying here. And so last question for the morning, why in the world would any of you sign up for this? Okay, those of you who are Christians... Why would you sign up for this? Those of you who are seriously considering following Jesus this morning, why would you sign up for this? It's upside down. He's got it all backwards. Well, Jesus isn't who we want him to be all the time. He's far too powerful and awesome for that. Jesus isn't convenient all the time. He's far too wise and loving for that. But in verse 35, Jesus describes the hope and the gift of following him in this world, whoever would save his life will ultimately lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, in our world, you win by winning and you lose by losing. In Christ's kingdom, you win by losing and you lose by winning. C.S. Lewis summed it up. I'll close with this. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death and the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in this life that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look out for yourself, and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. It's the craziest plan. Only God could have dreamed it up. 
It's wild that this is the way his kingdom works. It's upside down. And um, the only guaranteed way to lose something, a dream, an ambition, a comfort, a love, is to try to keep it for ourselves, but pour everything out for God, for the gospel, for his kingdom. And you not only receive it back, you receive Christ, the eternal life, with it. That's the crucified king. And that's the upside-down kingdom that he reigns over. Are you in? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Christ. Help our hearts confess that and all that that means. That is a monumental, life-changing thing to say and thing to believe. Help us understand that you are the crucified king. And help us, give us the courage the bravery and the faith to follow you in your upside-down kingdom in this world. And Jesus, we are banking on your promises that what you say here is true, that to find our life, we must lose it in you. We trust you and we love you. Amen.